0: Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Ruiz, And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we'll try to cover a wide variety of political developments in Europe since our last episode. It's kind of a European politics grab back today for Thanksgiving week. This includes a major blow to Germany's environmental strategy, Spain's uh, Pedro Sánchez, the Prime Minister, officially forming a new government, the resignation of uh, Portugal's Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, and the EU's artillery promise to Ukraine falling flat, at least for now. After that, we'll turn to a conversation Max had with him. Mamdaz consultant research fellow for European foreign policy and security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies for a conversation on French foreign policy. We hope you enjoyed the show. All right, Max, let's open with basically the common thread here is political instability. I was going to say returns, but really is still around at the end of the year uh, in Europe with instability and difficult coalitions across three countries, Germany, spain and portugal let's start with germany i'll lay the groundwork and then turn it over to you for some for some comments on what's happening so the core issue here is during the COVID emergency a lot of funding was made available uh, to help all kinds of aspects of society as we were all painfully aware Since then, the coalition has wanted to repurpose 60 billion euros from that emergency fund to support their climate agenda because this funding has been made available and not used for COVID purposes. Uh, However, the constitutional court has ruled it unconstitutional because it violates the debt break and that creates a huge hole in the planned budget that the coalition had for their big climate transformation fund, which would have supported a wide range of, adaptation strategies from EV charging stations to modernizing railways, infrastructure, environmental investments, and importantly for the conversations we're having everywhere is subsidies for chip bakers and trying to attract them to Germany. So that's kind of where we we stand. Uh, It's been reported this is the first time the court has struck down a federal budget. That's a pretty big blow for Schultz's coalition and for their strategy, especially with the Greens in government. On uh, environmental transformation. So, what did you think of this, Max?
0: Well, I think this is a, a really big deal—a uh, BFD to quote our, our our former vice president, who's now president. And this could really upend European politics, not just German politics. I think you outlined it correctly. I mean, I think we need to put in context: the German Constitutional Court has been known to sort of come in and and do. I think fairly ridiculous rulings to just put it bluntly in uh after the eu covid recovery fund, next Gen eu the german constitutional court caused a panic by potentially saying that was unconstitutional uh when you know eu law is supposed to trump uh national law but we have a big concern when it's like the polish courts trying to assert that and so we have a german constitutional court that I, i'm not enough of a lawyer to say oversteps their bounds But what I will say is that there are kind of two things now seemingly required by the German government. One is to aggressively decarbonize and another to maintain a balanced budget. And oh, there's this other thing of like uh, there's a war on in Europe. And so there's a lot of demands on German fiscal capacity. So but the root of the problem here is really the 2009 constitutional amendment to then create a debt break, essentially requiring Germany to have a balanced budget. Now, this was insane. This was, you know, in response to the 2008 crisis, which was supposedly about bad debt, which it actually wasn't. Um, But then that sort of has led to this kind of era era of austerity, the classic German school of economics, order liberalism. What's happened in Germany since then is, you're right, they froze the... Uh, the, or during uh, a, a time of emergency that they, they froze essentially the debt break, enabling the German government to, to borrow more funds to respond to COVID, uh, and then the leftover money they were going to use for, for climate. Now, the German Constitutional Court, I mean, you could argue their ruling is not actually unreasonable. But what is unreasonable is to have this debt break. And what the German government has been doing, not just Schultz but other but previous governments, the Merkel era, was finding ways around it, try you know, creating sort of special facilities and sort of off-budget funds that are effectively, you know, just enabling the German government to borrow more. But this is economically crazy because what Germany has to do right now is deal with the fact that their economy is becoming less competitive because their era of depending on cheap Russian gas that was going to fuel German industry, which was then going to export to the Chinese market is literally all collapsing. And I think this is what we, the Merkel era is sort of collapsing here economically and The way you should be probably dealing with this is making massive investments to try to reduce your energy costs as soon as possible. So Germany should be accelerating the green transition, trying to make sure that they and Europe at large, can uh, uh, effectively lower their energy prices to make their economy more competitive, which requires more investment. And oh, by the way, German trains aren't running on time. German infrastructure is collapsing because oh, you had a debt break and you didn't make investments when interest rates were negative. I mean, it's totally economic malpractice. Now the question is whether this coalition government, which then has, you know, if it was the SPD and the Greens, they would probably, you know, have a have a. A united approach here. The problem is that to remove the, the constitutional amendment <laughs> requires two-thirds. And it was the CDU that came forward and brought this lawsuit against the, the climate funding to sort of say, ha, 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 we caught you in, in skirting the rules economically. Well, then what's their solution? So this is an indictment, I think, both of the CDU, of the debt break from the past, which the SPD was part of, uh, and then the FDP holding, you know, was part of the coalition, but also firmly believes in in this uh, economic approach. So what's the solution? Hopefully, they say that this is, we need to have an adult economic conversation here. And the danger is if they don't, this will drastically impact also what's happening at the EU level in terms of EU spending.
1: Well, the challenge with having the political side agree that something has to give is from the point of view of the CDU, which is leading the polls by eight points, they're at 29% and the AFD, the second party in the polls, is at 21%. And they're clearly capitalizing on the FDP collapsing and its support because people who used to support the FDP think it hasn't been strong enough pushing for quote-unquote economic responsibility, fiscal responsibility, while in government. So the political incentives are not there for the CEO to try to do something about this. It, I agree with you, though. It feels a little bit like the dog that caught the car, because there's one thing Germans really care about is fiscal responsibility. But I think they also really care about climate transformation, especially younger generations of German, And those might look at this and think, well, you just made it impossible us to do this depending on how it's messaged in the news and the press and whether that message really gets through to those people but it is a little bit the dog that caught the car because what do we do now what's as you said was the city's green agenda without this money because it is an off-budget instrument but it would have represented about 13 percent of their regular planned budget for 2024 That is a huge amount of money for things that really really need to happen and i'm not just talking about competitiveness for this chip chip maker um subsidies for example but as you said trains running on time even thinking about (laughs) reducing paper use because everybody uses fax everywhere in the german administration so i i don't know how they get out of this because the ways to address this is new taxes there's no fdp is going to agree with that uh repealing the debt break you need Two thirds majority in parliament. I don't know how they do that. Or you cut spending, and the SDP and the, Gre- the SPD and the Greens don't want to do this. So, this is also happening in the middle of negotiations for the 24 budget. And we've heard from Lindner, it's fine, we could continue the same negotiations. But earlier this year, Habeck himself said that this is crucial to Germany's economic policy, and the coalition potentially wouldn't survive if this yeah, is dropped down
0: yeah i i mean the the problem for all parties in the coalition is that they it sort of now feels like they're in a collective suicide pack in some ways that Lindner. Uh, and the FDP are now at like pulling at 5%, so barely the threshold to get into parliament. So they don't want to have elections. On the other hand, they're, they will continue to bleed support unless they're seen as upholding these kind of, you know, very rigid economic policies. The Greens will also, I think, be in potentially terminal decline if they just sort of stand idly by and allow the climate fund you know, for, for basically Germany to to fall back and and not advance on any of its climate goals, and as Habek uh, rightly points out, like this is actually crucial for Germany's economy. So if Germany doesn't do anything here, and in fact cuts $60 And there's probably then more funds that would have to be cut because there's going to be other things that are going to be deemed potentially unconstitutional. So you're then looking at Germany dramatically cutting spending at a time when its economy is already on the ropes. I mean, that's what happened with Greece. And I'm not saying Germany is going in a Greek direction. But when you start cutting spending in an You know, when you need actual economic stimulus because you're already in a recession, that's also when it looks bad for Schultz and the SDP. Now, the question is do they all just have to hang together because no one wants to have an election? Lindner doesn't want to have an election when he's pulling at 5%. Neither do the Greens, neither does Schultz. And the CDU is pulling in the lead, but not by what they should be because they're not really an opposition party in the sense of they're actually to blame for everything. So, I mean, in the sense of deals with Russia, getting rid of nuclear, oh, now we have that break. So, I don't know. Germany's sort of at a pivot point where is it going to get serious about governing and about leading in Europe or not? And right now, it's largely been or not. And I think it's, it's it's a pivotal point. Now, there's been some hopeful tweet threads about how Germany can sort of get through this and maybe it, it means that they start having kind of real conversations about um, how, how to move forward here. I don't know. I don't know how this will work itself out, but they have a big political problem Far right party AFD polling second. Now you're going to have a, a far left party as well. That um, a, another sort of new far left populist party. So the outlook is 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 highly uncertain. And and frankly, it's I think a court coming in and causing chaos. Which is that really the role of constitutional courts? I don't know. Um, it I'm not I'm not in a position to say they're overstepping their bounds. Perhaps they're not. But but man, why? bring this lawsuit. If you're the CDU, you could say it's their right to, but um, what's their, what's the CDU plan to do with it? Just cut more. It just seems ridiculous. So
1: I don't, I don't think they thought about it that way. I think they were thinking about what is the short-term pain that can be inflicted on this government because we think it's too much money, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think, I really don't think they thought about this. I mean, we've seen this in the U S in some court cases that have really blown up in the face of people who brought them. So I think that's kind of what happened and it really has been, I think you said leading at the European level for Germany is kind of in question. I agree with that a lot. It's, it's not just its credibility as a climate actor, which is really important. It's also its credibility on the European level for this and any outside actor Germany has conversations with about climate transformation and then looking toward debates on the stability and growth pact negotiations And at the EU level, I mean, a lot of other partners are going to look at this and like, okay, you can tell us in those negotiations in Brussels, this is what you're going to do. Well, we know you're going to go home and your court court is going to strike it down. So it makes it really hard for them to be a trusted actor in those conversations.
0: No doubt. Maybe we should transition to Spain where there was white smoke and we have uh, Pedro Sanchez has established a government, will continue as prime minister. But it was incredibly controversial about how he got there, essentially offering amnesty to Catalan politicians that had led uh, what was deemed by uh, by Madrid, by Spain, Spanish government as an illegal referendum that led to leaders of this party fleeing and actually taking residency in, in Belgium. But Pedro Sanchez has offered amnesty and that will give him the votes of these uh, Catalan nationalist party and they will uh, support his government. But this is leading to protests in Spain and may uh, lead to sort of rocky tenure. But I'm curious, Danetian, what do you, what do you think of, uh, think of what's happening there?
1: I think about it two ways. One is I really think the status quo with Catalonia was unsustainable in the long term. It's kind of been dormant since the referendum because some people were, well, some people are on self-imposed exile, and others were thrown in jail for the organizers of the referendum. And since then, actually, separatist parties have lost support in the polls. At the same time, I worry about the long-term impacts, one, for spurring more support for Vox, because I think in parts of the Spanish electorate, some people have come to see Vox as, I don't know, probably a better supporter of Spanish unity than um the popular party which is a right-wing party that technically came first in the election in july but couldn't form a coalition and vox is a really scary far-right party to me at least uh in in spain so that's that's one part is the the potential it has to spur increased support for parties like vox the second one is some of the legal aspects of the amnesty bill the commission is currently looking at this to compare i mean the the Bill's introduction talks about other cases that have happened in other parts of Europe to say that all of this is normal. But Didier Enders, the commissioner for this, has specifically said we are looking at this because we're not sure. This bill um, makes sense for rule of law concerns in Europe. And there are, there were provisions, at least that we heard about at the time the bill was released, around oversight for some judges when it comes to interpreting amnesty law. There has been... Analysis by some corners in the past that some judges in Spain are so intensely against any kind of further decentralization and amnesty that they let their own opinions show in their rulings. But if we're going to chastise Hungary and Poland, for example, for making decisions around judges and the rule of law and political oversight of the judiciary, I'm worried about the implications of this. And I'll, I'll be curious to see what the commission thinks of it as well, because it's easy to say, well, look at Hungary and Central and Eastern Europe, but if you do the same, because that's what's gonna get you a coalition government, I find that to be really problematic.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's good the commission's looking to the rule of law concerns. I, I do think that it's kind of amazing to step back for a second, the feat that Pedro Sanchez pulled off. If you go back, Spain held legislative elections in May, Sanchez's party got eviscerated Vox did really well PP looked like it was on on the rise and almost any politician in that setting the last thing they would do is call a snap election and say okay let's go to the polls especially when he had you know some time to to, to stay in office for for not very much longer but for some more time to maybe see if that could could you know the, the political moment could sort of redound to his benefit but no he immediately called elections after the result and the impact was was uh, it was a sort of brilliant political move because what happened was essentially people realized like oh we were sort of you know voting for backlash but we're not sure we actually want backlash to be in in power and in the backlash being Vox, he was able to form a government. I think what he's betting on here is that while there's going to be a lot of anger, and there is a lot of anger, and and I'm not in a position to sort of judge that, that, that anger, what I would say is that I think the bet is that that will fade and that he's essentially trying to turn the page on the referendums. And, and the current fight that that was having that the Catalan nationalist movement um, has lost steam and that as long as you know you had this kind of ongoing fight that it was going to be problematic so this is a way of actually further taking out some of the steam from the Catalan nationalist cause and then in a few years it will will sort of have moved on and the anger that everyone feels will, will sort of uh, will fade and no one will be talking about this and you know I'll see you in four years for the next election and I think I think there's a certain logic to that and I, I think that it may work out now if if that's caused some some other structural issues and damage to uh, Spanish democracy I think that's something the that Commission and others hopefully will will point out and that that is like a legitimate, critique that, you know, if the opposition can then continue to raise that and that's going to be damaging to Sanchez. Well, OK, that that's that's completely justified. But it does seem that he's sort of pulled off um, a, a political Houdini act to, to stay in office.
1: Oh, he, he definitely did. I, I agree with you. I think there this could potentially be positive if that can defing the separatist movements a little bit. Some observers are saying that it's the opposite, that it's actually it gives them a second wind. I'm not sure we can say that. I mean, I don't think Carlos Pichdemont is running back to Spain anytime soon anyway. I think this is, if capitalized on, is an opportunity for Sanchez and his party to say, we tried to do something because the other side's approach was going to be incredibly aggressive and continue to be so. We'll see if that pans out. Personally, I mean, I also think he's in the middle of, the uh, Spanish rotating presidency, there's a lot going on. He probably wanted to get that done. And random fact is I'll be curious to see if that helps Spain, for example, change its position on Kosovo, for example, because now it has potentially tamed that like, regional flare-up a little
2: bit. We, we shall I, see. This is a
1: little too far, but we'll see. Another person who's having some trouble and is no longer in office, uh, unlike Pedro Sanchez, is Antonio Costa, who was until very recently the prime minister of Portugal. There's a big corruption investigation that triggered his, his, res, his resignation. His exact role in it is still kind of unclear, but it's generally related to some lithium exploration schemes, green hydrogen projects that they his government was really supportive of. But there's controversy over a range of things on their envirom- environmental damage, etc. So this is also for the socialists one more blow because Antonio Costa is from the Socialist Party. And he had been in office for eight years after overseeing a bit of a revival for the Portuguese economy through tourism, through tax breaks for what they call digital nomads, etc. So this is not a great look for him. There will be elections in Portugal in March of next year. There was the potential for someone else from his party to be nominated as the next prime minister. But the president decided that elections had to be triggered because this is a question of trust in democratic institutions and several people in close orbit to costa are involved in this investigation so that makes the bench a little harder for the socialist party as well in the next elections and it's one more story that's about some kind of scandal uh, at high levels of of politics
0: yeah i don't i don't have too much to add i mean i think look politicians that are in power for a long time It's not unusual sometimes to see corruption scandals emerge. Uh, But Costa was being looked at as a top job in the next uh, European Commission or head of the European Council. So uh, that, I think, was the the major shock to the system. And. Another election that will will suddenly take place in in March of next year, in a year that's full of elections. I think we'll have two quick topics that will hit in lightning speed. One is that there's also a Dutch election coming up. We're We're recording this on Monday. The Dutch election's on Wednesday. There are about a million Dutch parties it's it's sort of unclear where the outcome will be. Uh, no one's really pulling above 20%. But we'll maybe talk about that on a next episode. But Dutch elections are you know something that, that could give another signal about the direction of European politics. But lastly, I want to just maybe touch on a bunch of stories that were going around about the EU not going to hit the 1 million rounds of our artillery that they were uh, supposed to produce, so these 155 rounds. And this isn't really a shock to anyone, or shouldn't have been. I had... You know, meetings with European officials months ago uh, that were in the know, they're like, no, there's no chance we're ever going to meet this target of, of producing one million. And this has caused a lot of finger pointing between industry and national governments. And I think the big question is, Who's at fault here? Well, I would say literally everybody is at fault because the problem is that European defense industrial capacity has been too low. And then also you have European defense industry not opening additional factories, being sort of slow to prioritize Ukraine. And this is where European governments should really, I think, you know, shake them by the collar a little bit. But then you also have European governments haven't really stepped up and provided the contracts needed to incentivize what are very conservative business Uh, folks, because this is an industry that, you know, can only sell the governments to really ramp up production, and open up additional production lines. That's going to cause new money that thus far isn't in the cards.
1: And if you listen to industry, it's also issues of unlocking loans and enough capital. Yeah. make those investments.
0: And one of the things that we have advocated here at CSIS is that this is really where the EU should step in with its ability to borrow funds if the German Constitutional Court, you know, doesn't step in, but to borrow money and say, okay, we're going to make, you know, we'll we'll cover the risk for these companies and incentivize them to have open up new production lines, and we'll be the buyer that really starts ramping up production so that we can get these systems to Ukraine, these munitions to Ukraine. And restock our warehouses, but that requires the EU to do it, and that requires European member states to act. And if to to tie this all together, if the German Constitutional Court is now causing Germany to revert back into austerity, and it can't contribute anymore to the EU budget, and it's going to object to the EU borrowing any more funds, well, where are we left? Not in a good place, I would say.
1: Agreed. It's once again an issue of credibility and actually putting your money where your mouth is for the big ambitions that are stated summit after summit Uh,
0: with that i think we'll turn to my conversation with rima montaz uh, which is about a country that you know we haven't mentioned yet on today's podcast france which matters a lot and 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 also about her time and experience covering the european union when she was at uh, politico eu it's a really excellent conversation so stick around thanks so much for joining us on The Europhile.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So you have been a longtime watcher of Emmanuel Macron. And I want to maybe start by asking you, when you covered him for uh, Political Europe, what was it like covering him sort of day to day?
2: I would say a marathon. That's where I would start. You know, Macron is... Uh, hyperactive. Every day is a new day. Every day is a great day to, you know, launch yet another initiative or make a statement that will go around the world and have, you know, tongue wagging, whether it's, uh, you know, in all of the capitals of Europe or even all the way to the US or Russia or China. So it was fun. I mean, I would also say that it was uh, a really fun job to, you know, cover someone like Macron. Also challenging because, uh, you know, some days some of the things that he would do would be very controversial. And as a journalist, you always have to find that sweet spot between being fair to what he was saying, but also being constructively critical and providing analysis for your your readers. So yeah, it it was a good job. It was a fun job and definitely not one for the faint of heart.
0: And I think one of the challenges that at least I find from watching Macron and and I think this is true of French foreign policy in general is sometimes they throw a lot at the wall. They throw out a lot of ideas, new big initiatives, and then it's really hard to sort of track what it, if this is actually real or not, if this is actually going to be a big deal or is this something that will in 6 months everyone will forget about. And I'm but imagine as a journalist you're being thrown a lot of initiatives uh, a lot of the time and I'm curious how you know, is that a fair assessment? Is that how how you perceived it? And then how do you sort of try to figure out what is actually real here and what is just seems like a, them trying to get attention to put it? Well, maybe in a, in so a blunt way. Here's
2: the thing. When I was a journalist, my job was just to report whatever they were doing that day. So I didn't even try to select whether they were doing something that was going to be effective or productive. I just reported what they did. As an analyst now, my job is definitely to sort of sift through what they throw at the wall, what can be effective. Are they throwing ideas out there with the means behind it, backing it up with the concrete legwork that is needed to to make it effective or not? But actually in October 2020 when I wrote this piece called Emmanuel Macron the Think Tanker in Chief it was precisely that I was taking a step back and trying to assess over you know the last 2 years leading up to 2020 all of the things that Macron had attempted to do on the foreign policy front and I had said that on the EU front he had been extremely successful he had managed to play a central role in casting the what we call you know the top jobs so casting who was going to be the president of the EU Commission, who was going to be the president of the EU Council, et cetera, et cetera. He had also managed to get Germany to do the recovery fund um, after COVID. He had done all of these things that were very important and actually trend-setting on the EU level. But then I took a look at what he was trying to do on Libya, on Turkey, on Nagorno-Karabakh, on Russia, and none of them had led to, I'm talking 2020, had led to concrete advances. And what It was a very interesting moment because I got a lot of calls from French policymakers, officials, diplomats telling me that I had missed something very important about France and its role in the world and that a big part of France's role in the world was to produce ideas. Whereas I was taking perhaps an American view, which is, You're a military power. You're a nuclear power. You're a permanent member of the Security Council. And so the definition of a power is being able to shape your strategic environment. And I felt like he wasn't able to do that and he wasn't succeeding at doing that. And their approach is... No, you're being obsessed with these like results. You're too results oriented. We, our job is also to contribute these ideas to the global discussion and debate. So when you see the French president come up with all of these initiatives all the time, it's a very central part of his foreign policy. Because also he thinks that France needs to be playing a very central role in all of the major issues in the world, whether it's climate change or the China-Taiwan issue or now Israel-Gaza or, you know, obviously Russia and and Ukraine. So he has, you know, an expansive mind and he sees France's role as one that is expansive as
0: well. Now, do you think that role has sort of evolved now in Macron's second term? You know, both, maybe we'll start with the European context. You know, it seemed like I I sort of view it, and maybe this is overstating it, that essentially his election sort of saved the European Union coming on the heels of Brexit in 2017, and that if Le Pen had won, it was (laughs) not looking too rosy for, for Europe in 2017. But then he immediately comes out, proposes you know sort of grand vision for the European Union it's sort of rejected by Angela Merkel she sort of pats him on the head and then just continues to to ignore
2: until she couldn't anymore and, until
0: she couldn't and and so in some ways feels like he, he has made a lot of progress and Europe is kind of in a more macronian place and then probably a merkelian place than it was today than it was in 2017 I'm curious sort of when it comes to Europe and the sort of advancing the French agenda on the European stage, how do you assess it? Has there been an evolution or are they continuing to, to sort of throw in ideas and drive everyone crazy?
2: I think there's two parts to that question. The first is, yes, you're right. Macron has really succeeded in infusing a lot of his ideas into the EU ether. And sometimes he doesn't get credit for it. And sometimes he does. It was very interesting that it was the Estonian Prime Minister Kayakalas who was the one who went forward with this idea of the EU has to figure out a way to better produce ammunition, 155 millimeter munitions for Ukraine. That is something that Macron has been talking about, obviously in a less concrete way, When he's been talking about European strategic autonomy, sovereignty, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of the kind of thing that he has in mind. Interesting that it was the Estonian prime minister who came up with a very concrete proposal. It wasn't the French president, but of course he supported her. We also saw that the Europeans have become a little more geopolitical in the sense that when the Russians invaded Ukraine, it so happened by coincidence that France had the presidency of the EU. And of course, this was a consensus because nothing happens in the EU without consensus. They all agreed to use the European peace facility in order to fund weapons in for a country at war to defend itself, Ukraine. That is definitely part of the French spirit and the Macronian vision. That's one part. The other part is, unfortunately, for all of his ambition and talk about European strategic autonomy sovereignty, he was not able, when Russia invaded Ukraine, to step up and take the lead in the military response, and he ceded that leadership to the U.S., Because Europe was not in a position and France was not in a position to fill the industrial gap and to step up industrially in order to produce enough weapons to keep up with the demands of a war of this intensity. And so this was a very big missed opportunity for him to, in a way, leave a legacy building mark. He's been trying to adjust his position since. It's taken a while. And the jury is still out because he said some of the good things and the right things, but the actions are lacking still.
0: You know, it seemed like in in 2022 especially when Ukraine membership in the European Union sort of got put on the table, that you saw, it was both Macron and also then Prime Minister Draghi saying, well, okay, we need to do EU treaty reform. And that was sort of slapped down in 2022. And then Macron's response was like, okay, well, we have to that. He's not going to prevent Ukraine from becoming, you know, a, a candidate. But then you know, made sure to have the comment that it would take decades for Ukraine to become a member, a pretty clear signal that there wasn't a lot of excitement in in Paris. But he seemed to sort of shift tack earlier this year when he went to Bratislava. I was in Paris a, a couple of weeks ago, heard a lot about the Bratislava speech. And I think for good reason. It seemed a real shift or, well, probe to see if you think it's a real shift. But France taking a more proactive attitude that, yes, we want, or at least a more positive attitude. We want Ukraine to become a member, but, you know, we have to do some reforms to the EU, like, obviously. And that seems sort of a better profile. I guess the question, do you think there's been a real shift in Macron's thinking towards Ukraine and also toward Russia and a new sort of approach toward the east of the EU?
2: Macron gets a lot of credit for recognizing Pretty early on in the current phase of the war, I guess, in in Ukraine, that it was very important for the EU to seize the geopolitical moment, read the room politically, and be very clear with Ukraine that even if it takes decades, its place is in the EU. And he put a lot of pressure on Schultz, the German chancellor, to get that statement when they both went together with the Romanian prime minister- president to Ukraine. And that was something that he truly drove. But like you very astutely pointed out, he did say decades. And it was from the beginning in the French mind, coupled with essential reforms of the decision-making process in the EU. And that is still An essential thing in the French approach. They haven't changed their position. And when you have conversations with them, it's very clear that they see the challenges ahead. They have been paying attention to how Poland and Hungary, in particular, have kind of weaponized the EU need for solidarity and unity on Ukraine in order to get compromises on things like rule of law. And that is a bad signal if you're sitting in Paris. You don't want to go down a road where you give even more veto power to countries like that while you're trying to integrate a country as big as Ukraine, as uh, needing economic reforms with a big agricultural sector that will throw off the balance when it comes to the common agricultural policy. All of these things are very big when it comes to the EU. Which also means that right now, the prospects of an accelerated Ukraine membership in the EU have almost disappeared. Like, there's a long road ahead, one that is frayed with a lot of obstacles. Is treaty reform going to happen? Are they going to come up with something else? What is Germany going to do when it comes to these reforms? There has been some change and some more flexibility on the German side. But, you know, we're far from consensus. And so if you have these two tracks together, that might get complicated.
0: On the Bratislava... uh, Can I say on that, though, the one thing is I think sometimes the Eastern Europeans, because they weren't in the EU, sort of forget about the 1990s and, like, the preparation for them was a decade of treaties from Nice to Amsterdam to then you know a constitution that failed and then Lisbon. And so enlargement sort of goes with reform, probably too often side with the French in some of these, but it strikes me as fairly reasonable that there has to be reform. And I think it's now just dawning on everyone, especially with the fight over grain and Ukrainian grain entering the Polish market and the EU market, but through Poland, that, my God, this will have huge impacts. So we have to begin to think about how this is structured.
2: Absolutely. And this is where the EU gets very concrete. You know, people always gripe about how the EU is disconnected. It's a bunch of technocrats and diplomats. But the truth is, when you're talking about the common agricultural policy Every single person in the EU knows what that's like and understands what that means for their food and for their grocery bill and all of that stuff. So this is where also you have to keep an eye on public opinion in the EU and make sure that it stays on side. And in France, it's an explosive issue. The agricultural issue is still very important for the French people. So, yeah, there is a rationality and uh, common sense to the French position on this. On the speech, though, in Bratislava, you know, it's being billed by a lot of people who are either French officials or people who watch France and are maybe wishful thinking watchers of France, that it's kind of the revolution of Macron or his Zeitwende or his 180 80 degree sort of change on Ukraine and Russia. I think it's important to listen intently to what Macron says, to what his top advisors say. My sense is that there has been a real tactical shift by the French president on how he wants to deal with the problem of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And when I say a tactical shift, it's not to undermine what they're doing, it's not a criticism, and it's not negative or pejorative. Tactical shifts are important to allow the creation of space and maneuvering margins in order for things to maybe happen or not. Is it a complete strategic shift? Has Macron completely changed his mind on the relationship with Russia and on Ukraine's place in Europe? I have doubts about that. And I think we need to continue having doubts until we see actions that prove the contrary. So the reason why I say all of this is because shortly after that speech, Macron gave an interview and his diplomatic advisor gave an interview. So Emmanuel Bonn was at the Aspen Forum right after the Vilnius summit, NATO. And he was asked about the position of France when it comes to NATO-Ukraine membership. And he's fluent in English. And what he said was very interesting. He said that France was very strongly in support of, and I'm quoting, credibilizing Ukraine's path or pathway, I can't remember which word he used, to nato he used the word credibilizing, which is Franglish and it comes from French. It's crédibiliser. And that means lending credibility to something. And then Macron gave an interview to Le Point in September. Le Point is a French magazine. And in it, he was asked again about this. And he said, the EU and NATO direct quote will be part of a larger negotiation at some point. You can understand this as saying a smart, savvy tactical move, which is they're trying to Make sure that everyone who's observing this issue believes that we are very serious about Ukraine becoming a part of EU and NATO. Maybe to improve the negotiating positions at some point, or maybe as part of a major settlement later on. That's a possibility that we have to keep on the table. It's not necessarily a negative, but I think the conversation about this has become so Manichean, so good versus evil, so black and white that this kind of gray area is difficult to say publicly and it's difficult to defend.
0: You know, probably one of the best things about covering Macron is the loud reaction that he often gets. You know, I oftentimes joke that Eastern Europeans constantly yell at Macron and say, you're not the president of Europe, but they react to everything he says as if he's (laughs) the president of Europe. But I want to maybe turn to kind of the Washington perspective. And I think there's a lot of confusion is probably not the right word, but sort of the US never is quite sure where France is on certain issues. And I think, you know, Macron's trip to China, where I think before that trip, you would ask American diplomats, they say, we seem totally aligned with our French counterparts. And then, you know.
2: They weren't listening to the French, I think.
0: Well, you know, oh, they're gonna send a a ship through the Taiwan (laughs) Straits. And and I think there is actually a lot of alignment. But then what strikes me is that if you're the leader France, you never want to be totally aligned with the United States. And so there's always then this moment of difference that then causes everyone in Washington to throw up their hands and, and lose their hair. So I'm curious, is there kind of a, a French need to sort of constantly poke Washington or is that just sort of an added plus? I'm curious what, <laughs> how you see the Franco-American relationship. I mean, relationship.
2: talk about a Washington-centric question. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, it's, <laughs> it's not about poking the U.S. It's about preserving French uniqueness. That's super important for any French president of any political party. And that is what they call and refer to as the Gaullian inheritance, right? De Gaulle is such an overshadowing sort of personality in the political landscape in France to this day. And he is sort of the embodiment and the epitome of French independence and autonomy and sovereignty and the return of national pride after the Vichy era. So it's essential for the French to always give themselves the freedom to do things differently. It doesn't mean that they're not allies of the U.S. And by the way, it doesn't mean that they perceive the U.S. and China the same way because they do not. And I think Macron, to be fair to him, has said this pretty explicitly, repeatedly, even though he talks about a third way and France proposing a third way in the Indo-Pacific. He also says, I am not equivocating between the U.S. and China and the U.S. and China are not the same for, for France. One is an ally and one isn't. So he recognizes that. But he's very keen on showing that France has its own way in the world. And also, some of his advisors think that this is a very constructive thing that France is doing, even that could be useful for the U.S. when the U.S. wants to change course or if the U.S. needs to send a message in a different way. This is also how they see their perspective. Of course, the problem is that when Macron was in China and basically said something that gave the impression that he thought that it was the U.S. that was being provocative on Taiwan and provoking China on Taiwan, that wasn't a very smart or you know, accurate thing to say. And of course, it provoked a lot of unhappiness in in Washington, given how important the, the China challenge is from the perspective of American policymakers. But that's one thing you always have to keep in mind with with Macron. He's constantly trying to carve out a space for him to act and to do things in a very specific way. And he's constantly trying to distinguish himself. It doesn't mean that he's not an ally of the U.S., it doesn't mean that he is going to backstab the U.S., even though, to be frank, the French system is still not over AUKUS. And that is a crisis and a moment that is weighing still, at least on the French-American relationship. And I think that will weigh for a while because the French felt betrayed and blindsided and humiliated. And that doesn't make for a lot of, you know, trust among allies. So that's one thing that needs to be Addressed constantly. The other thing is I think policymakers sometimes in DC have a tendency to forget about the, you know, the, no. the concerns. <laughs> no. <laughs> about the concerns of their allies. Mm-hmm. And a country like France, if it feels like it is being treated like it's irrelevant by an ally as important as the US, that's very hard. So I think US policymakers also have to keep that in mind and find ways to leverage how France can be useful and where there can be good partnership. Because the truth is, an effective and productive and successful France is useful to the U.S., and helps the U.S. further its interests.
0: We had the French foreign minister here, I think around this time last year, and I introduced her and I said, you know, one of the problems in our relationship is that we're in some ways too similar and both sort of very proud Republican democracies. And I think the challenge for the U.S. is we're not always great at partnering. And I think the French want to always be a partner and oftentimes in the lead, And we're never used to not being in the lead. And I think some of these issues then come out sort of at a bureaucratic level at NATO, where we want NATO to sort of sprawl and be everything. And the French are like, nope, NATO is, you know, basically a European combatant command needs to be very constrained. And the French have no problem of telling us (laughs) that, you know, that they're not going to go along. And that's, you know, unusual, frankly, with a, a lot of our European partners.
2: And I think it's also it comes down to an issue of language. So, you know, what a lot Aligned means in English is not the same as what it means in French. Aligned in English means on the same line, right? Standing shoulder to shoulder. In French, aligner means standing behind someone. And that's something that the French cannot accept, that they're going to have to stand behind someone, whether it's the US or anyone else. And then there's, you know, the particulars of the Franco-American relationship, which goes back decades and centuries. And in some ways, perhaps there's still a bit of discomfort among the French that it was the Americans that had to come kind of liberate
0: Europe and Mm -hmm. liberate the French. And
2: there's a bit of, you know, the national pride is a little bit kind of hurt by that.
0: We'll never let them forget it either.
2: Well, and that's the thing. So, you know, it's like they want to be able to reassert themselves. And, you know, like we were saying earlier on on this podcast, it's the the Americans also tend to look at things in a very results-driven way. And they will look at, okay, you know, we recognize your leadership. What can you bring to the table? What are you doing concretely? What have you been able to accomplish? And the French have a more nebulous approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't size up their power and their weight and leverage by only these metrics of, you know, what is the end result? They also measure it by how much conversation has been generated. What is the state of debate? What are the ideas that are being discussed? So, you know, it's also a cultural difference. But at the end of the day, if France and the U.S. can't work together, the Western block is weaker for it. So we all have a vested interest in that relationship, recovering, being more constructive and being more productive. And to be frank, perhaps both countries can do better.
0: Yeah, which I think the White House recognized, which is why Macron got the first state visit of President Biden's turn.
2: They also wanted to atone for AUKUS. Yes, there was a lot of AUKUS (laughs)
0: atonement that was taking place. Interestingly enough, the French don't bring it up, at least bilaterally, but you can tell it was a loss of trust clearly took place. But I want to switch gears. You have been, obviously, a longtime journalist at Politico EU, probably the the news outlet that really covers Brussels. And I'm curious for your take on the kind of EU media landscape that one of the things looking at it from sort of an outside perspective is that most European press covers the national capitals. But then Brussels, where there's so much going on, actually doesn't have the same sort of media environment that we have here in Washington. And I'm curious how you sort of see the current media landscape and how is the EU covered in Europe? And is, is it kind of the right mix?
2: So first of all, the comparison with DC is very apt because there's a huge contrast. And one of the problems is that there isn't the kind of money and financing that you have in DC for media in Brussels. That's a real problem, and it affects the quality of the competition that exists, right? A media ecosystem is richer when there are multiple great outlets mm-hmm. sort of competing for scoops, as is the case in DC. In Brussels, you know, political Europe, when it launched in 2015, it really did disrupt the whole media landscape. And it innovated how to cover Brussels in a way that was in-depth and irreverent, in-depth and funny and mischievous. Mm-hmm. And it was important because Brussels is always seen as this drab, you know, sort of very boring, technocratic thing, faceless, you know, n- not embodied by anyone. And I think political has managed to change a lot of that. And since Politico launched, others have attempted to do something similar. Context tried to do something like that in French. The FT launched an excellent newsletter recently that has been honestly giving Politico Europe a run for its money. The New York Times has invested in their coverage in, in Brussels, and they're doing great work. But you see I'm mainly referencing American media organizations and British media organizations that have the money flows from elsewhere. But the truth is that, you know, Politico has gone through a bit of a change recently, and some of its coverage has has changed. And I think they've created more space for more competitors to, you know, fill in some of the spaces. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if there's someone that moves into that space. Because what I did learn by working, you know, on these, issues is that there's huge appetite. And it's not just appetite in Brussels, right? There's the Brussels bubble. Mm -hmm. But then you have 27 countries that are very thirsty for any kind of insight into the Brussels machine, in addition to Beijing, Moscow, the US, DC and New York all of these centers of power are also interested in what the EU is doing, because while the EU may not be a geopolitical giant, it's a giant when it comes to norms and trade. And these are things that people are very interested in. So there's, I think, a lot of potential there that is still untapped. And yeah, it's interesting to see if someone's going to move into it.
0: And I'm curious just you know, with the national focused media, I assume they all have correspondents in, in Brussels. And, you know, you were in, in Paris. So the Parisian diet of news, I mean, I assume there's a lot of Brussels focused coverage in some of the national press, or am I... Much less you know? than you would expect. Yeah. And that's an issue. I mean, that's the sense that I have. But, you know, as, a, as an yeah. American that just speaks American, I then sometimes <laughs> struggle <laughs> to, to dissect what's happening on the national press level.
2: No, but this is an issue. I mean, coverage of the EU pre- per se, in French media is much lower than it needs to be Mm -hmm. given how pervasive, you know, anything that is decided in Brussels is in French life, whether it's political life or social life, you know, economic life. That's a real problem. There's still an issue in Europe in general of Brussels is the perfect scapegoat. Anything that goes wrong in the capitals gets blamed on Brussels, and very rarely does Brussels get the credit for doing something right. I think COVID kind of shifted that, but not necessarily, because while the commission really innovated in how it was going about buying vaccines and making sure that all of the EU countries had access to vaccines at an affordable rate. The various countries felt like things were going too slowly and were unhappy. And so there was a lot of disappointment and and dismay at the way the EU was running it. But of course, there's the EU Recovery Fund And everyone's happy to get that money, but no one is saying, oh, this is coming from Brussels, and thank God we have Brussels. So this is kind of the the short trip that the EU always gets. I don't know if they'll ever be able to change it. It might just be something that is part of the nature of the beast. But definitely national media can and should be doing more coverage of Brussels, per se.
0: That's probably one of the next steps also in the evolution of Brussels and evolution of the European Union is as people within Europe begin to recognize its importance and starts doing more, especially on the global stage, suddenly the need to understand what's happening at the EU level really expands. And that's both true, I think, in Washington, but needing to know more, both true in Washington, but also in in national capitals.
2: And it has great Also comic potential. I mean, some of the things that happen in Brussels are just, you know, the other day, I think a group of parliamentarians were supposed to go from Brussels to Strasbourg, which is the other seat of the parliament, and they ended up in Disney World Europe. I mean, how does that happen? It's like out of a sitcom, but it truly did happen. So, you know, some of it is really fun and some of it is obviously very, very serious. Right.
0: But, yeah. You know. No, and some of it's really technical and, and gets in the weeds, but that's actually the stuff to cover. And then there's great bribery scandals oh, that are happening. Gosh. So, you know, I guess this is a, a call for Politico Europe to expand and for more competitors to, to dive <laughs> into the marketplace. But Reem, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Eurofile. It's been been a real pleasure.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: that's it for today's episode as always if you enjoyed the show please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts you may also be interested in our sister podcast russian roulette which covers the latest on vladimir putin's russia and the ongoing war in ukraine our thanks to our producer michael kohler and to Otto svensson for coordinating and researching this episode we'll be back soon with another assessment of europe through a washington lens until next time